Linda. How you doing? How are you? Fine, fine. Thanks very much for, for talking to us today. No, it's um, a pleasure and, to be invited. Thank you very much for that. Oh, no, it's great. Great to have you. Um, as you know, this is a um, Women Uninterrupted podcast. Uh, we're looking at gathering stories and information from women about the work they're doing in the communities, but also about their own journey and how they got there. Um, so I was just thinking we could maybe start off, Linda, if you could tell us what your role is in the Women's Support Project in Glasgow and what you are trying to achieve with that. Sure, Dawn. Um, as you say, I work with the Women's Support Project. I mean, I've been here, oh God, 12 years now. Um, my role is a national role. So I cover the whole of Scotland. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm my fancy title is that I'm a national coordinator for commercial sexual exploitation. And I always think that makes it sound like I'm coordinating what happens with it and how it's actually happening out there. <laughs> but really, the focus of my role is to raise awareness of commercial sexual exploitation as a form of violence against women. So what that basically involves is trying to engage with as many kind of strategic partnerships as possible to ensure that they understand one that commercial sexual exploitation prostitution is a form of violence against women and trying to push it up their kind of priority and their plan and um, I do a lot of kind of public yeah. education so go out and engage and um, with kind of broader audiences in a way to raise awareness of the harms and the realities that women face in the system of prostitution, develop loads of resources around that. I do capacity building and training. And I suppose to sum it up, Dawn, as my mum would say, um, it's a perfect job for me because all I do is talk. But actually what that means is, <laughs> I said, that's fine, mum, I'm Irish, it's genetic. But what it means, is, I suppose, Dawn, is a big part of my role is trying to connect with organizations kind of forums networks and individuals and services to raise that awareness of the needs of women um in prostitution but not just the needs of women it's about trying to shift some of that focus onto those who are causing the harm and those who choose to kind of cause the harm within the system of prostitution so that's looking at the men and it's looking at the profiters and it's looking at yeah. the traffickers and it's looking at the pimps and i suppose and I mean, I get funded by the Scottish government under violence against women and equalities money because, you know, in Scotland, the Scottish government and, you know, previous yeah. governments before this current administration, they clearly identified and saw the, the kind of role that prostitution and commercial sexual had, exploitation had in kind of creating that culture, that conducive culture where other forms of violence against women take place, as well as being a form of violence in and of itself. Now, so what we're trying to achieve is to yes. raise that awareness um, and to ensure that work around commercial sexual exploitation just doesn't sit in a silo somewhere or gets popped off in a corner, that we're trying to actually embed it into the local policies and strategies, position statements um, to ensure that work happens on a local level, but that it's supported at the national level. Now, I've been in the job 12 years and you think, well, you should have achieved that by now. Um, but what I'll say mm -hmm. is we are a long way off actually getting to that point mm -hmm. um and we're yeah. you know scotland we've set ourselves the mission that we want to prevent and eradicate all forms of violence against women and what we say basically the women's support project and with our partner organizations is that you're never going to prevent and eradicate other forms of violence against women unless you address this one but this particular form of violence against women let's be honest dawn it has been neglected it has been pushed aside 
everybody considers yeah. it a hot potato. So that basically means that everybody passes it, um, passes the buck in many ways round, and it actually hasn't received the same leadership and commitment and resources that other forms of violence against women have, have up, up, over the past 20, 30 yeah. years, really. Yeah, totally agree with you. And you see that in other services as well, don't you? And I think the work that the Women's Support Project's done in the past and continues mm -hmm. to do has kind of pushed the agenda, even with other violence against women projects, yeah. where it's become more open to have that discussion and more open to address um, some of the issues within strategic strategic forums and things like yeah. that as well. And that has been, I mean, I know, I know that you've been involved with the Women's Support Project yourself, Dawn, and obviously we've worked really closely over the years. But I think that has been part yeah. of the role of the Women's Support Project, um, has been identifying, you know, emerging trends or issues or concerns or bringing the kind of issues up more to the fore and more to attention and doing some of that pump priming work around those issues and then in a way looking at who else can continue that work um, and how that can be embedded yeah. into other people's work you know um, we've like obviously we've done it around commercial sexual exploitation you know Jan McLeod my colleague she's been involved in this work from you know for decades really um, and kind of push that yeah. understanding on the local level in Glasgow and try to shape that understanding on a national level. But the big problem we have done, as you know, only too well in Scotland, is that there's not that consistency across, never mind on local levels, but taking it up to the national levels. And if you look at for this particular yeah. issue, even if you just look at the kind of service delivery across Scotland, I mean, we have, what, eight specialist services that support women involved yeah. in or who want to exit or who have exited um, prostitution, commercial sexual exploitation. So we've got a tiny, tiny, tiny service sector. And that means that we need yeah. others to be kind of engaged and taking this issue on board and recognising that they have a role to play in it, not just thinking, oh, that issue, that sits over there. Oh, right, here's a woman who's involved in prostitution or who's being sexually exploited or who's at risk of it. And what has happened is people don't engage with that with the women. And actually, they just silence yeah. the women and they don't see that they have a role. I mean, I, I will always remember one of the women I worked with, Wendy, in a project I did called Inside Outside. And, you know, we've always said about, oh, yeah. you know, we need to create spaces where women can disclose what's happened to them and when a time is right for them. And we talk about that. But, I mean, she had repeatedly told other services and that she was involved in in addiction services and mental health services, mm -hmm. what she that she was involved in prostitution and she needed help with that. Now, addiction said to her, well, we only deal with your addiction and we don't have to prostitution. Yeah. And mental health said, you know, well, we'll deal with your mental health, but actually we don't, that's not really something that we would talk about or engage in. So for her, nobody made those links. Nobody captured that actually her addiction was related to her prostitution and her prostitution was closely linked with her addiction and the same with her mental health. So for far too long, for women who have, you will know, but for women who have experienced violence, you know, we've moved vastly around our understanding of domestic abuse and sexual violence, sexual yeah. assault, mm -hmm. but we don't apply that same learning across to other forms of violence and in particular to this one. So it always separate and is always considered um, the contentious issue in a way. And to me, it's like, well, yeah. yeah, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, domestic abuse was a contentious issue. Child abuse is a contentious issue. But that didn't stop us and actually deciding that not only do discussions need to happen, but action and policy change and resources and strategies need to be put in place and legislation around our approach. 
But for commercial sexual exploitation, literally don't. Whenever I go in, you can yep. see people's faces sink and their hearts sink and they go, oh, God, here she is again. Because, I mean, I very often find in like <laughs> strategic and policy planning, you know, they're talking about issues for women and they're talking about developments and they're talking about engagement. And then I'll say, sorry, can I ask wh- what about women and prostitution? And literally it's like, oh, God, she's asked the whole question. Yeah. You know, so I Part of my role is ensuring that the women are there in some ways at that kind of policy table um, and at that strategic yeah. table. But and the re- understanding that, you know, for women, they're leading really complex, um, at times really complex, really difficult lives. And they don't want to engage in some of these strategic discussions and policy discussions. For a lot of women, they just want to get on with it. And, they, and for a lot of women, they're in the position of just surviving. So they're not... Yeah, yeah. And I think... It must be difficult. It must be difficult for somebody dealing with that every day to then go into rooms where maybe they don't even feel heard anyway. But why? Can I can I ask you just for your because I, I I toy with this in my head all the time. But why do you think that people are so resistant to it? Why do you? Think- I think Dawn. I think there's loads of reasons, right? But I think one of them is this gets to the core of misogyny and this gets to the core of male entitlement and this gets to the core of patriarchy. And and, and yeah. in order to really address the question, we have to look at the role of men's entitlement, you know, their position. Um, and I think whenever you start asking some of those questions, people are incredibly uncomfortable. And I'll just share with you, I mean, recently yeah. I was asked to present at a, a big conference being run as part of the 16 mm-hmm. Days of Activism. And um, mm-hmm. I had submitted my presentation beforehand, you know, as a keynote speaker. And then the night before the, yeah. the event, I got dropped from the platform. And whenever I said, well, can I ask you why? And they went, oh, I think it's just a bit too much. It's maybe a bit too much feminist. And, you know, and, and what I was told was they didn't want to turn people off the other issues of violence against women like domestic abuse and sexual assault. And they felt that my input would challenge people too much. And I thought, there you go, there you go. It is that actually this is the difficult conversation that we need to be having and people shy away from it. And also I think that people hear the word sex in commercial sexual exploitation and people don't like talking about sex anyhow in Scotland we've made roads to change that but let's be honest we've not made it we're not much further along the line so I think people don't hear the the other words and they just think oh that's about sex now sex is about two people consenting and having um you know fully consensual mutual agreed sex but no it's not and I also think one of the, the big difficulties is Liz Kelly has done some brilliant work around this and Maddie Coy it is that um, not every man is involved in buying sex, but in a way, the mm-hmm. idea that it is there bolsters men's position. And that very often yeah. men can achieve status and rank through aspects of entitlement, misogyny, buying women. And I think some of the research with younger men shows this clearly coming through about how they achieve status and rank and masculinity in their peer groups through being engaged in um, uh, like looking at pornography and sharing pornography. So I think we have to start to unpick the role of this in bolstering masculinity and not just creating like the notion of toxic masculinity, but actually it's the foundation of it, of that misogyny misogyny is that you are entitled to have sex with whomever you want to have sex with even if she doesn't want to have sex with you and I think 
And that's the yeah. core that we need to get to. And whenever I'm doing public education, I raise this. And I said, why is this so yeah. hard? And then people skirt around it, you know. And, and the big thing I think at the minute that is really difficult for people to engage with this is that there's a very dominant message that this is about choice. And therefore, we cannot critique a woman's choice in terms of what she does with her body. So people will tend to want to deflect from looking at the role of men within this. And the role of men within creating this system of prostitution. And they prefer to go back and talk about, well, some women choose to do it, therefore it's okay. And that's, to me, that allows people off the hook. Because then we don't have to engage any further with that conversation. And we don't have to turn the spotlight onto the men's role. And also, let's be brutally honest, that, you know, if we think about men who do pay for sex, um, and you have Mm -hmm. to look at who they are, it is not other men. It is men in our communities, mm-hmm. but it's also men in powerful positions. And and men yeah. in powerful positions, the system of prostitution, they're fully engaged in it. Um, and again, I'm going to share something. You go out on the Inside uh-huh. Outside project, which I mentioned earlier. It was a storytelling project, a life storytelling project with women who were currently involved or who had left prostitution. And the women were allowed to fully tell their story about how they got involved, what it was like for them, and if they'd exited, what that kind of process and journey was like for them. So it was a really intense project. The women were in control. It was very much about them dictating the terms of that kind of a project with me, but in terms of what they wanted to share out in the public. Now, we also done a kind of photography art exhibition about how the women would want to illustrate their stories and share parts of it. And we had one of the, we took it on an, an exhibition on tour. And one of them was up in, um, up north in a city up north and we were holding it in a university a launch night and of course the great and good are always invited yeah. to these kind of yeah. events and one of the women was there now nobody knew that she was there mm-hmm. she was there this was her night this mm-hmm. was her exhibition as well as the other women she wanted to be there and I was chatting to her at the start yeah. and I just saw her face go white and I was like what's happened what's going on and she went oh my god two of them are here so two of her partners were in the invited yeah. audience now yeah. she said and she yeah. stuck it through because I was saying this your night they uh, you know that they're there but they know that you're there and actually they're more worried about you being here than they are in the reverse but, because they're here in their professional context yeah. and you could blow the lid but I remember in my presentation I said yeah. and let's be honest there's punters in the room tonight and I deliberately stopped and made eye contact with those yeah. two men and held it until it was uncomfortable because yeah. I think we have to start calling out that actually, you know, if we think about other forms yeah. of violence against women, Dawn, and we've had major problems, but whenever mm-hmm. kind of key figures, especially within positions of power, have been found um, to be perpetrators of domestic abuse, sometimes they lose political party positions. Sometimes they lose kind of significant yeah. roles and jobs, but very often they don't, you know. But I think and it's yeah. become more acceptable in a way to call men's behaviour out around other forms of violence against women. But we don't about this because it's deemed to be a bit too sensitive no. and uncomfortable. And I think yeah. people shy yeah. away from this with the idea that it's always been there. So some, you know, the prostitution's yeah. always been there, therefore it will always be there. Now, to a certain extent, I do imagine that whenever you have vulnerability that can be exploited, the system of prostitution will continue to exist. Um, But I think this idea, it is comfortable for people to say that somehow this is just inevitable or somehow that this is part of human nature. It's not. You know, this is a and this is a system that has been created that benefits one particular sex over the other. Yeah. And there's lots of links being made through research through the years between 
capitalism and the rise of prostitution uh, and yep. also slavery as well, uh, like the, the movement of the British people to Australia um, and the, the introduction of prostitution. Absolutely. Then, um, and, and so there's lots and lots, isn't there? I'm, I'm interested because I think you're right. I think we call out other forms of violence against women and children, um, not completely, but maybe yeah. more easily, as you say, maybe the Me Too kind of campaign yeah. really helped that. Um, but with the with commercial sexual exploitation, in particular prostitution, I think people um, being unwilling to see the great and the good as being capable and inverted commas yeah. of doing that. Do you know what I mean? I think is one of the things that that, that prob that's problematic. But what worries me as well, being involved in violence against women's sector in general, is this is the links across people who are willing to exploit others sexually yeah. um, and intimately. Um, for their for their own gain, for their own gratification, yeah. for their own power, um, and it kind of reminds me of that quote by uh, Audre Lorde about "I am not free while any woman is unfree, even if her shackles are different yeah. from mine," yeah. um, and that kind of link across that how power is at the core of all this. Do you find um, that for women who, who who are exploited through prostitution that there is histories of other forms of violence, such as child sexual exploitation, yep. child child sexual abuse, are, are those are those significant issues for the women? Um, um, absolutely, and I think there is the definite links and the connections. And we all know that women don't tend to experience just one form of violence against women. They tend to experience multiple and that's throughout their lives. And that kind of continuity yeah. throughout their lives, absolutely, Dawn. And I mean, this is not about framing that every single woman who's involved in prostitution you know what I mean, has come from a background of that. Yes. However, we have to acknowledge that disproportionately there is elements of violence, yes. abuse, exposure to violence and abuse growing up in contexts like that yes. where women have that continuity. And I mean, a lot of the women that we work yes. with for the, yeah. the Women's Support Project and the Encompass Network absolutely have backgrounds. Um, and, you know, it's very yes. interesting. I think whenever you ask women, wh when did you ever first get involved in it? And the number of them yes. that will say that they were 14, 15, 16. So a high number, Dawn, have been sexually exploited as children. Now, in Scotland, we understand that under the age of 18, that if you are um, involved in sexual exploitation or you've been um, com commercially sexually exploited, exploited, we recognise the power imbalance. We fully appreciate yeah. that it, for child sexual exploitation under the age of 18, that that is a form of exploitation. It is an abuse of power. But whenever a woman turns 18, yes. suddenly she's made a valid choice. And therefore, yeah. any notion of power yeah. differentials or abuse of power goes. And of course, that's not the reality. But also, I think whenever women, not just that continuity from kind of child exploitation into, into adult exploitation, but also so many of the women have had abusive relationships, have experienced and lived with domestic abuse, either as children um, witnessing or directly experiencing it themselves. High numbers involved yeah. with sexual yeah. violence, rape, both in the context of the prostitution, but also outside of it. So I think, again, it comes yeah. to me that we do not make those links across and see that women are mm -hmm. victims of multiple forms of exploitation and yeah. violence rolling in. So it, it isn't acceptable to kind of siphon it off. And there's one thing I think, Dawn, just to come back on something you said earlier, we were talking about earlier, is that kind of notion of 
capitalism and but about this is about the commodification of human beings and it's about the commodification yeah. of intimacy and relationships and it's about the idea that um if you have money or you have resources or you have power that you are then you are entitled to have access to somebody else's body and sometimes yes. people say to me oh my god that's that sounds really prudish and it's like, no, it's not really prudish. Yeah. What we're talking about is that individuals should be entitled to retain bodily body integrity and agency. And that we women should not have to forego that in order yeah. to put food on the table, you know. And and I think yeah. and I think there's something about we prefer to consider this as an individual issue. Oh, well, that's an individual woman who's made a choice to be involved. That's an individual woman. She's making so much money. Um, and we, because we focus then on individual's choice, we don't step back and look at the broader notion of it. Now, we know within, for example, if a woman is living in a domestic abuse situation, we recognize the challenges. We recognize power dynamics. We recognize the lack of choice. We recognize the impact of that on women's aspiration and, and, and ability at that time to see an alternative future for herself. We know that there's women, whilst they're living with domestic abuse, will go, well, you know, I've kind of made my bed or this is a better option because sure, where will I go? Me and the kids will be homeless. So women that it's yeah. better to for women at that time, they see that it might be a better option for them to remain in that context. But however, as workers, as services and as kind of policymakers, we understand the reasons why she feels like that. But we don't then go, oh, well, actually, there's there's a number of women who are involved in domestic abuse who say it's probably better for them to stay because at least they've got a roof over their head. So let's not look at kind of policy changes. And let's not look at campaigns. And let's not look at legislation because a few women say that. But whenever you apply it across yeah. to prostitution, everybody prefers to pick out the individual. And I think, but I think I'm kind of a change yes. of rhetoric around some of this, to be quite honest, because I think even whenever I started this um, job 12 years ago, there was a bigger focus that prostitution and being involved in prostitution was in some form of empowering for women. Now, actually, that is not so much of a dominant discourse. And in fact, there's yeah. a more of a recognition even with um, amongst kind of lobby groups and organizations that would see prostitution as a form of work and a form of sex work. Yeah. But there's a more of a recognition that women are coerced into becoming involved in this form of work. You know, women are being forced yeah. into it because of their circumstances, which is poverty, lack of um, flexible employment, lack of stable, well-paid employment, you know, insecure and stable um, housing and accommodation, lack of childcare that will in ensure that women have other options, women trapped in zero-hour contracts. You know, we look at those as the reasons, you know, that keep women in the yeah. system of prostitution. But if we only ever focus on an individual, we fail to see the sy systemic failures that push women towards this. But I mean, if I could honestly, yeah. every time I go out and speak to people or do anything, somebody will put their hand up and go, oh, but I know of somebody who's involved in prostitution and she really loves it. And I said, Jesus, that's mm -hmm. amazing that yeah. you know that woman well enough. Because, you know, services that have worked with women yeah. over the years, um, <clears throat> You know, that women take a long time potentially to disclose the real impact. You know, work I've done with women, they talk about the need to wear the mask whenever they're involved and tell everybody that it's great and they love it and it's fine and they're making loads of money. But it's only in, in other spaces and times that they're able to disclose, actually, I'm crumbling underneath. I am falling apart. This is killing me. But that's amazing that you know that woman well enough that she's disclosed that. And then oh, we don't yeah. really know where it's yeah. a friend of a friend. And I'm like, 
stop, stop, <laughs> help, stop you using one person's experience to justify a whole system. And I think we can get into yeah. very often pitching an individual woman's story against another individual woman's story. So one woman saying, oh, you know, it's amazing. And I've like been able to have a lifestyle like this. And, uh, you know, I've been able to go on holidays and I've been able to kind of put my kids through private education. But then we pitch it against a woman who's going, well, actually, you know, I was my boyfriend started pimping me out whenever I was 15 through that I developed addictions and my mental health suffered so I think if we just focus on individual narratives then we lose the sense that actually yeah. this is a much bigger problem that is related to inequality it's related to gender inequality it's related to poverty it's related to discrimination it's related to disadvantage but if we only ever focus on the individuals then we actually don't have to do too much about it yeah and and, and it always amazes me how any other subject um, barring violence against women and children, to be fair, um, strategy and legislation is never based on the yeah. individual. It might reflect what individuals need and it might reflect that mm -hmm. some of the risks and dangers mm -hmm. are around for individuals, but we make decisions on these matters based on um, solid research that looks at what how these things mm -hmm. arrive there and how things can be overcome that's that's what yeah. we're meant to do policy and legislation on and it interests me that we and and these in any violence against women movement within legislation it takes yeah. so long because it's they have to get through that oh but she loves them with domestic yeah. abuse or our children don't really know what's going on or, and now we're in the position where we're looking at and saying well these women are making choices and we should really be giving them the employment protection while they're being exploited by these men and the whole time the whole mm. time no one's no. talking about the men and i think it's that 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 there is so much in common between those who who would see the answer being within unions, as you say, like wanting to protect women who they know uh -huh. are vulnerable, who are in vulnerable circumstances and have complex things around about them, with with, with um, other women who would like to see a focus on men. So we, we both agree on that. The only the, the main disagreement seems to be around about where legislation and policy yep. should sit. So the Women's Support Project, you were saying earlier about challenging yep. demand. Can you explain that a wee bit just for Sure. Um, I mean, the Women's Support Project, I suppose, right from like decades ago around the understanding of prostitution, it was clearly understood the role of the men in this and um, that men were not accountable for any harm that they were causing and that we had to change that spotlight and starting to challenge the demand and challenge the concepts underneath that demand. Now the Women's Support Project, I mean my god it was 12 years ago actually again that they conducted that research um, and they called it Challenge and Demand yeah. and it was with over 100 men in Scotland who had bought sex, paid for sex um, in different contexts um, and I think that was a big illuminator in many ways Don, as to um, who these men were but actually what they thought um, and I mean it was clear through those kind of qualitative interviews that the Women's Support Project done that um, men clearly saw that they were entitled to it they clearly othered the women 
that these women were somehow not quite yes. like other women. They weren't like real women. They were almost caricatures or fetishized caricatures of women. And that the men, even whenever they acknowledged that this was based on kind of exploitation, that didn't stop their behavior. It didn't stop what they had done. Yeah. So there's a failure of recognition of their impact um, and also a recognition of the position that that woman was in. So the, the Women's Support Project, I suppose, in many ways, that kind of primed a lot of the discussions in, in Scotland. Um, and my post was brought in to look at that around that kind of concept of challenge and demand. Now, it has been an incredibly difficult program of work to be quite honest around it we have tried to um, organize kind of campaigns around it and be involved in campaigns around it we have tried to do some of that kind of public education and engagement work we have tried to and I've linked with um, you know organizations like the white ribbon campaign in Scotland where you know as many people will know where men sign up to never condone collude or commit any act of violence so trying to link with them about engaging with men but I will be honest the doors have been shut very often around yes. that, around yes. that idea. And we have had over the years um, different pieces of legislation that have been proposed, private members yes. bill. We had one in 2010, we had another in 2012 with um, Rhoda Grant. Um, Jean Urquhart proposed a different form of legislation, a fully decriminalised system of legislation in um, Scotland, that was 2015. We've had the human trafficking strategy and legislation that was consulted on. You know, so we've had a lot of kind of, of consultations around the legislation. And uh, in many ways, the calling for men's behaviour to be criminalised and, and purchase of sex in all places, that has been the controversial bit. Because, again, people are like, oh, yeah. but if we remove the right for men to buy sex, then what about the women? So we're removing their income stream yeah. and we're going to compound poverty and we're going to do that. But in reality, Dawn, we, whenever we were looking at kind of criminalising behaviour around domestic abuse, you know, it was not considered, and we moved from that consideration of, oh my God, that'll ruin that poor man's life. With that, and we yes. used legislation in a way, Dawn, to change public attitudes, you know, to frame it that. I mean, recently we introduced, people will know it as the kind of coercive control um, legislation, which was how to capture um, and look at um, that, that element of kind of behaviour that was not physical violence. So it was trying to capture the power dynamics and the more subtle ways in which women's, women's lives could be controlled. But we move forward with legislation around that. Um, and move forward whenever there was criticisms around that legislation and concerns around that legislation, but Scotland moved forward with it. So we're not, in Scotland we have a history of, in a way, using legislation to shape public opinion and attitude um, around other forms of violence right. against women, and on this one we don't. And I think for challenge and demand, the whole concept behind it is that men have a free choice in which to purchase sex or not. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I yes. again, I remember with one woman I don't work with, um, you know, that she said that she was involved in street prostitution in Glasgow. And she said, but Linda, you know, what they're doing is they're buying our consent. So it is a very yes. different power differential. Men can freely choose. And actually, let's face it, Dawn, we've just had COVID. You know, we're still in the middle or in whatever stage of this. I, I'm not quite sure where we are now in the pandemic. But um, I mean, the sex <laughs> yeah. industry pretty much closed for a period of time during um, COVID. And you know mm-hmm. what? Men were able to get by without having the right and the ability and the option to pay for sex. Now, some did. And many men actively used COVID as a way to exploit vulnerability. We done a scoping exercise yeah. um, via the Encompass Network 
Um, during it, and we looked uh-huh. at adverts on Craigslist, Viva Street, Gumtree, and adult sites. Um, and what was really notable was the amount of men during this who were asking and putting adverts up asking for women, asking women to be able to pay for sex with them. Um, and they were, I mean, and they did, those adverts were clearly framed with an understanding that many women had lost their jobs, many women were struggling financially. And these yeah. men were like, yeah. so they were actively and in the full of acknowledgement that women were facing destitution. Wasn't it great that these men were there ready to do some kind of public service notion and an, an idea that they would somehow pay women and therefore they were really like good members of the community because they were putting money in the women's purses. And the, the idea is, yeah. um, you know, if you were good members of the community, you could put money in a woman's purse without ever having to have sex with her in the first place. So I think COVID flew, threw up that actually this concept that men must have entitlement to sex. And I think there's lots of yeah. kind of straw arguments flung into this at times around um, this con- this idea that, you know, men must have sex. And very often what is used and to justify the system of prostitution is disabled men or men with kind of physical needs. Yeah. This idea, well, if, like, if the system of prostitution wasn't there, I mean, how would these poor men be able to have sex? What is interesting is there's not the same kind of emphasis or discussion that um, we need the system of prostitution to ensure that women with disabilities are able to have sex. Yes. You know, so very much the focus is always on, well, the men need to be, men need this, they must have it. If there's not the system of prostitution, well, all the other women outside of prostitution, the rates of rape and sexual violence are going to increase. So somehow we need this cohort or this group of women who are there and available in prostitution for men in order to protect other women. And I mean, what a ridiculous notion yeah. that somehow we need to create this subgroup of women who will be the yes. foot soldiers and protecting the other nice women outside of prostitution. So I think we're in challenge and demand. Yeah. It's, um, and there hasn't been the resources put into it. You know, there's been huge public campaigns yeah. and police campaigns and Scottish government campaigns and sector campaigns about domestic abuse, you know, um, about rape. But there's not been the same investment in a campaign that really challenges some of those concepts for men who, who buy sex. It's always shied away from. Um, and I mean, I mean, I think legislation is a tool to shift attitudes, as is public education. Do you know what I mean? And I think part of public education yeah. is really challenging men to think about the concepts about where is their role within all of this? You know, what part do they play? Mm-hmm. Um and I mean, yeah. somebody recently said to me, you know, but we need to we need to tread softly to bring the men on board. And I'm like, <laughs> it's good. Because of shrinking bias. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And again, it's back to that idea of um, being told that I was a bit too feministy to present at a conference around balance yes. against women, you know. So I think, yeah. and, and I mean, yeah. we in the Women's Support Project, we have done work to engage with men on these issues. I mean, years ago with the White Ribbon Campaign, we tried to find ways to get men to come to events. They didn't. So what we did was we tried to do like quiz nights, which sounds ludicrous in a way but we tried to do quiz nights to play on the idea of men coming together in that kind of context but and we used the quiz night format and we had rounds around statistics round which is about men working out the correct figures around elements of kind of sexual violence and numbers and statistics we had a picture round where we looked at famous men and men had to work out had they purchased sex or not had purchased sex so we tried to use the format to engage with men and actually loads of men came to those pilot sessions 
And what they did was then the group discussion was in their kind of pub quiz, quiz night team. That's where the small group was. But they were at the end of every quiz round, they were then discussing the issues and unpicking the issues. And, and so, I mean, it was, a real, it was a good format. But I mean, that's not going to shift the culture, Dawn running small events like that. Yeah. I mean, it needs much more broad, widespread investment. And also the violence against women's sector cannot shoulder the responsibility of changing men's attitudes out there. You know, there has to be that commitment with yeah. large institutions. And I mean, we're in the middle of 16 days and this is normally conference season and there's all these events um, organised. You know, I would say for the past 10 years, this is my busiest time of the year. Why? Because suddenly everybody goes, oh, God, it's 16 days of action and we haven't done anything around prostitution and commercial sexual exploitation for a year. Shall we just get Linda along and do a wee input at a conference and we can tick a box and we'll not do anything until next year? You know, so I think like very often the responsibility falls onto the sector, onto the women's sector to kind of change men's attitude. And absolutely we can. And we've got the kind of creativity and the drive and and the experience and everything of that to shape it. But we can't do that on our own without a bigger investment. And I mean, I always remember at one event during 16 days and there was a whole row of men there from different uh, institutions, you know, the police, the council, the fire brigade, all of that standing proudly with their white ribbons. That's great. And then I remember speaking to some of them going, oh, God, that's brilliant. You know, um, you're not going to you've agreed not to you know, take part in any form of violence against women and they were very proud. And I went, God, do you understand that that real you mean what that means? That you shouldn't be looking at pornography and you shouldn't be going to lap dancing clubs and you shouldn't be paying for sex. And the look on their face was like, you what? And I said, Oh I but that's forms of violence against women. Did you not understand that? And yeah. one guy one guy took yeah. off his ribbon and he went, Well if I'd have known that, I wouldn't have had that on me. Oh. oh, that's outrageous! That was like the guy when I was when I was a teenager and I was uh, collecting money for uh-huh. Ronnie's aid. So many moons ago, Linda, and somebody one guy came back and asked me for his money back. So he thought it was dogs. <gasps> so he was prepared to give money. <laughs> he was prepared to give money for the dogs, but not Did for supporting women and children. But not for not for women who are in refuge. No, um, do you know that has been such a fascinating discussion? I want to. I, I would really love to ask you a question because we are kind of starting to run out of time. Um, but I'm thinking about you, Linda. I know that working in violence against women's sector myself. A lot of people say, "Oh, that must be really difficult work, and you know, it must be quite depressing." And I find violence against women work amazing because you, you're yeah. meeting women who are going through change. You're, you're moving forward, you're doing development. What What's your journey like being in this and what kind of things have you learned through this Dawn, time? my background was youth and community work in North and West Belfast during the 90s. And I suppose, I, I think I always yeah. say to people, that's where the fire was lit in my belly. Because, yeah. you know, it was a really, yeah. um, and, and the, one of the reasons why the fire was lit in my belly was the women I worked with in North and West Belfast. These were strong women who had kept their yeah. communities going. They had kept their families going. Um, and at that time, I mean, they were my mentors. They were the women that I was working alongside. So it really gave me that sense that women could and should and do take the lead. But actually, that, that women were agents of action. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I think was one of the fundamental things for me in my journey was that actually if you give a group of women a job to do, it would be done. Um, But it would be done in this connected way with disagreements and arguments and all of that that goes on and passion and things like that. But I suppose I really learned then about 
for women to be community leaders, but to be women very often had the transformational role within their communities, that women could see the vision for an alternative and women could see the other. Mm -hmm. And women were prepared to sit across tables quite literally at that time and make connections to move things forward for their families, but for their communities. So that's where I was embedded in my work. Um, was with that kind of context and I agree with you coming into the women's sector and coming into the violence against women sector um, in Scotland there is I mean and meeting the most incredible group of women um, and that that passion and that drive and that energy but that can do attitude that looking at well where's the problem and why is that a problem so what can we do about it and also I think very often it was that sense of the practicality of women you know they didn't tend to look for the obstacles they tend to look for the open doors in any kind of given situation Um, and so for me I mean I'm here 12 years um, I never thought yeah. it would be at the start, yeah. to be quite honest, because, you know, I'd very often worked on projects that had three year funding um, and I kind of done a project and moved on to another one. So, I mean, I've been here and I do say to people, I think I've got the best job in the world um, because <laughs> because it is so much based on a vision of an alternative world in a way. And it's about challenging the status quo and it's about challenging the foundations and it's about showing spotlights on really difficult conversations. But it's also, for me and my job, it is, again, that idea that can do. It's looking at where there's gaps and looking at developing new projects. It's looking at developing new ideas. It's looking at kind of trying to be really creative and finding ways to get information and resources out to people in different alternative ways, running photograph exhibitions. But the thing, the whole thing that keeps me going and that idea about this work is difficult and depressing, it is. It is at times because you're dealing yeah. with really difficult issues and you're actually at the forefront of hearing the reality of women's lives um, and women disclosing yeah. that. And so you you hear all of this, but also what you're exposed to is how women will come together, how women will band together, how women are prepared to work together. And actually, I mean, I do think in Scotland in many ways that um, women have been pivotal in changing legislation, policy and approaches because that was based on the work of listening to women's real lived experience, listening to survivors, allowing them to name their violence, allowing them to kind of look at the direction ahead and working alongside a woman. But I sometimes feel we've lost a bit of that sense of um, moving towards the much. And I know we all have to work in professional ways, Dawn. But I and I think it's interesting that obviously through COVID, what has suddenly come up again is, oh, my God, this really innovative idea about community development. And you're like, excuse me, you what? (laughs) You what? That's what all of this. But you know what I mean? It's like this was all the work. Everything has been based on that. And now it's being resold back to us as, you know, you maybe want to think of this idea or rebranded. So for me, I mean, I've always worked right from my first work work that I ever done has been working in communities or working with communities. And I'm incredibly lucky in a way that I have a strategic role. But I also get this chance still to engage face to face with women with lived experience or who are actually going through things with the projects. And I think for the Women's Support Project, that is one of the amazing opportunities through it is that we still do that direct engagement with women. But we also have the clear links into policy and strategy. Now, that's where the frustration comes, but that's where the opportunities for change come, you know. And for me, around that kind of journey, Dawn, I haven't a clue where this has taken me next, to be quite honest. I'm glad I'm going to ask that question. Well, next, I don't know. Actually, you know, there's many times I think, 
I think I just like to start baking cakes and not to be involved in this work, you know. Um, but then there's other times where I think, you know, part of I see my responsibility as well is like working with younger women coming up and mentoring and supporting yeah. younger women because I got that whenever I started out. And I see that that's part of my role now. You know, we always try and work with volunteers. We always try and work as much as possible kind of with women in groups coming up to volunteers to give them skills to kind of move onwards and upwards themselves. Um, you know, and like, and I think that is also part of where the invigoration comes in this sector is where you see the freshness coming in at times and new voices and new faces and new perspectives coming in. So I think that's what kind of keeps me going. Um, but where I go next, I don't know. You know, um, you know, my mum still says to me, can you not get a job that I can tell your granny about? Um, <laughs> and I'm like, nah, ma, I probably won't do that. Um, but you know, but I think I think once you're in the women's sector, very often it can be a difficult place to leave. Um, yes, well, it's hard. It's, it's a reality that doesn't it doesn't exist outside that bubble for the, the want of a, a popular word. Um, that reality of um, women's experiences in the feminist movement it, outside the women's movement, you you've got to engage with other yeah. things, don't you? Not that we don't every day through other partnerships, but but I'm I'm fascinated about this. I I feel as if there's a a notion of a feminist mentoring project coming up. I mean, I think so. it's hugely needed, Dawn. <laughs> hugely needed. So I tell you what, right. after after we finish recording this podcast, you and I will just bang out a proposal and we'll work out a whole project about a feminist uh, mentoring movement. Um, and we'll have that done by five o'clock, yeah. right? We'll 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 have that. And I'm and I'm sh I'm sure the Scottish government will be sitting waiting on it as we speak. As long as it's not too feministy, you know that kind of. So don't worry too feministic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Linda, thank you so much. Honestly, that has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and um, really inspiring as well and and really looking forward to seeing what you do um and in the immediate future, but also in the longer term. No, and thank, thank, thank you, you so for much. the opportunity to be part of this kind of women interrupted say, um series. I think it's a hugely valuable approach and resource as well for other women. So thanks very much for the opportunity to have a good old chat with you this Fantastic, morning. Fantastic, Linda. Thanks, Linda, for a fascinating insight into women's experience of exploitation through prostitution and other forms of commercial sexual exploitation and how these interact with other issues that women experience, such as poverty and histories of child sexual abuse and other forms of violence. This was a hard podcast, and I really hope that people who listen can reconsider and reflect on what they've heard and think about how we can contribute to supporting some of the women that experience some of the most serious exploitation in our community. In the meantime, take care everyone, look after one another and keep learning and keep organising. <laughs>